Hello, everybody. Welcome to Into the Light. I'm Braylon Drew. And I'm Aaron Stager. And we are so happy to have you on this week's episode. We are so happy to have Bonnie with us today. And Aaron's going to tell us a little bit more about Bonnie. We're seriously so excited to have <laughs> Bonnie on the podcast today. We're super blessed to have friends and connections that get us to be able to talk to these people. And yeah. you're in for a treat with Bonnie's story and the things that she's going to tell us about today. So I have a, a brief bio from her recent book. So Bonnie just recently came out with a book called Gathering Israel's Children. And it's incredible. I just finished reading it this morning, actually. And it's such a tender, it, it's an inspiring read. And we're going to talk about it a lot during this episode. But just to get us briefly introduced to Bonnie, here's her bio. Bonnie Hilton and her husband, Brett, co-founded Deliver, Rescuing Children at Risk, a nonprofit organization with the vision of helping tens of thousands of children get out of detrimental environments and into loving forever families. See deliverprojects.org. She's passionate about giving children the opportunity to become all they can be and believes this best happens in a loving family. For the past 30 years, she has served as a licensed clinical social worker in a variety of settings and currently works at Hand in Hand International Adoptions. She earned her bachelor's degree in family science from Brigham Young University and her master's degree in social work from the University of Utah. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She served as a missionary in Guatemala for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Her favorite places to serve at church are teaching seminary and doing young women's camp. Bonnie and Brett are are the grateful parents of nine children through surrogacy, international adoption, and domestic adoption. A fun fact about Bonnie is she has won over 20 medals at the Huntsman <laughs> Senior Games in basketball, <laughs> cycling, and swimming. Wow, you're an athlete. <laughs> That's incredible. And Bonnie's also, so we're recording at the Utah Valley University Library currently. And she's, <laughs> she's wearing her BYU royal blue t-shirt because she's going to the game later tonight. <laughs> Bonnie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so Thank much for being you. here. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much. I feel like it's such a privilege yes. and honor to be with you. Thank you. Yes, we're so... This this topic really hits home, at least for me, and I know Aaron is very passionate about it because um, it talks about families and the importance of families. So we kind of want to start off with talking about your family, kind of how you grew up initially, um, how prevalent was the gospel in your life? Was it prevalent in your life? Um, kind of tell us about your dynamic with your siblings, et cetera, because that's kind of where this seems like it's going, right? For sure. <laughs> that's where it starts. Um, so I am the oldest of six kids, and my parents were both um, active in church, and so they um, passed that on to us. So we were active in church. We went to church on Sundays and um, during the week when they used to do it. That I guess they still do it that way. Um, and we, uh, we started off in Utah, but then we moved to Shawnee, Oklahoma. Wow. And so that was going from uh, a Mormon church on every corner to a Baptist church on every corner. So, um, but we loved that. We loved the people in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And we had a small ward there. Um, and we became very good friends with the the members of the church. Uh, they became our, our family. And um, so I am the oldest, and so I, I, um, I guess I'm carry the, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> carry the oldest child um, responsibility. Um, my husband tells me I have a high responsibility index. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, um, but I, I learned um, to be sensitive to spiritual things from my mom. Mm. And she was just like that. And my dad was very service-oriented. And so um, he loved to serve, and he passed that on to um, his children. And so um, I love my siblings. We had good relationships, still do, which is a blessing because that doesn't always happen. But but I'm grateful for them. And um, we had similar interests. We we were kind of an outdoorsy family, um, loved to boat and camp, and... And, um, and we're kind of sporty, and uh, so um, I guess that's 
Yeah. That's a good description of us. You're obviously sporty from your bio. Yeah. That's the Senior Association titles you've got. It also sounds like you kind of got the best of both worlds with your parents being service-oriented and spiritual. Did you guys have a lot of gospel conversations within your home? You know, we didn't. We weren't one of those families that studied the scriptures every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did do family night. And so we usually had some sort of a, a spiritual discussion, but we played a lot yeah. on family night. And um, But because my dad was uh, so service-oriented, he was always engaged in something with the church or the gospel. And so that was our life's kind of, um, you know, surrounded that. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. When did you first recognize that you kind of, I guess, inherited your mom's spiritual sensitivity and your dad's sense of service? When did that, when did you become aware of those things? Oh, that's such a great question. I think it was just when I was really young because my mom was sometimes like we do, we sometimes get emotional when we feel the spirit. And I noticed that I would do that as well. Mm -hmm. Like I can remember in primary one time singing the song Where Love Is. And I remember just starting to kind of cry, you know, which as a young girl, you're kind of like, wow, this is weird. What is that? Right. And, um, but I've come to learn that that's how I often will feel the spirit is I will feel that emotion kind of bubble up. And, um, and I, so I think it was when I was quite young. And did this continue throughout like adolescence, high school? You know, I, you know, I, I, (laughs) I, I feel like I was blessed with a gift, and and I know in watching my own children, sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I had they had this gift too, because I feel like I have just this desire to be obedient. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, living the gospel, choosing to live the gospel, wasn't hard. And um, but I know that's not always the case, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so. Um, so I feel blessed that way. So I, I love the gospel. I love um, feeling the spirit. If somebody were to ask me, what's your greatest blessing? I would say that. I would say um, that communication with the spirit has been such a, a strength throughout my whole life. So, um, yeah. I love that. I love that. That's so cool. So I guess to get started with, with your story, um, it all starts with this this time in your life when you were diagnosed with infertility. Yes. And just to give a, a brief overview of like what Bonnie's book is all about, it's a compilation of stories of different mothers who have adopted, of different mothers who've given up their children for adoption, of children who have been adopted um, from foster care, from being a refugee, whatever it might be. But Bonnie starts off her book with this chapter that's called Infertility Within the Lord's Plan. And we're not going to spoil the whole book, but this story in particular is about Bonnie. And I wanted to read this first paragraph, and then I just want to get your, your thoughts and, and how it all started. So Bonnie says in this first chapter, Although infertility is not a part of everyone's journey in becoming a forever family for children in need of one, it was for me and my husband. Sometime in the spring of my 14th year, I learned that I had been born without a uterus, I felt devastated, especially when I, I would hear quotes stating that there is no greater honor than par- partnering with God to bring his spirit children into the world. Mm-hmm. I knew that I would not be able to do this, and I wondered how I would fit into a church that placed such emphasis on motherhood and family. I'm sure those quotes were surrounded by qualifying phrases, but my teenage ears seemed to pick up only what I would not be able to do. To add to my confusion and pain, I felt the Lord had blessed me with a special love for children. And I had noticed that children seemed to naturally love me. I often wondered why and how this made any sense. So 14 years old, that's young to be given that big of news, especially in the family that you grew up in. What were your thoughts around that time? Yeah, it was was painful. Um, I remember sitting in that doctor's office, and he was drawing on the the paper that you sit on, on the, the, um, whatever it is, the bed there. And, um, and he told me, you know, you have ovaries, but you don't have a uterus. 
and so you won't be able to bear children. And I remember I, I felt devastated. I, I started to cry. And I think my mom was wondering how to comfort me. And she was crying too. And so then we just left um, the doctor's office. And I remember she, my mom loves to shop. And so she took me shopping and she bought me this really cool um, Levi jacket. And I think that was her way of saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she felt some responsibility because, um, you know, it probably happened when I was forming, mm-hmm. you know, in her uterus. And, um, but the topic, um, it wasn't really ever, it didn't come up. And we didn't really ever talk about it. And, um, and I decided um, that I would keep praying about it. Um, not really specifically, but I would just keep praying. I wasn't going to give up on the Lord, even though I kind of felt like, I wonder how this you know, works with, with his plan for me. Yeah. And um, so um, years and years later, I talked with my mom about it, and she said, well, we thought that you were doing fine, and so we didn't want to upset the apple cart. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that happens. To kind of bring it up. Situation? Yeah, okay. yeah, because she thought, well, you're, you know, you're excelling in school, you're having fun with sports, you're, and I, I you know, probably didn't show symptoms of depression or... Outwardly, anyway. Outwardly, right. And it wasn't years, it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I thought, you know, maybe I ought to address some of those emotions. And so I actually went into therapy at that point in time mm-hmm. and tried to address some of those things. And I was able to talk to my mom at that time, and she was able to share with me what they were thinking. And so, you know, it yeah. again, um, just talking... Um, really made it made a difference, and there was some healing that took place at that time. Interesting. That's insane. Just a not medical question, but does did you guys kind of discover this because you weren't having a period or anything like that? Yes, okay. that was part of it. Okay. But I had also um, gone in because I wasn't feeling well, and I had mononucleosis at the Got time. It. But he did a full physical, hmm. and so he asked me that, "Have you started your period?" And I said, "No," and he said. You should have started by now. Yeah, and so he did a full physical, and he's like, "Oh, yeah, it looks like um, you're missing some parts." <laughs> so, That's insane. Um, I've never heard of that. But yeah, crazy. it was. It was really, really hard. And and as a 14 year old, you're just kind of, you know, coming into puberty, and yeah. you know, and just trying to figure those things out, and it's kind of embarrassing. And mm-hmm. and so I don't think I talked to many of my friends about it. Yeah, I think I just kind of kept it to myself until I got to college, and then I started to share because you start, you know, talking more with your roommates and stuff like that. That's crazy. So yeah, because at that age, you don't even know like what's going on in your head exactly <laughs> like, yeah. exactly wow that's incredible how did you how did you deal with that news i mean you said that you pretty much covered it up when it comes to outward expression of emotion or whatever it might be but it had to have come across your mind it regularly really right so yeah. how did you how did you deal with that as a as a small like teenage girl yeah i i just kind of kept moving that's kind of the theme i think in my life i keep moving um but i remember my grandmother wrote me a letter and she said please don't blame your mother for this and i thought at the time i would never blame my mother (laughs) and i just felt so sad that she would think i would and so interestingly i took that letter and maybe this is indicative of what i was doing emotionally and i went to the backyard and I dug a hole, and I buried the letter. Mm. <laughs> and so I think for a while there, I just buried it. And that probably wasn't the healthiest thing to do, yeah. but I think that's probably how I coped during mm. that time. When you were in therapy at 40, did you guys kind of talk about how you could have had those feelings of blame towards your mom? or? I don't know. That's just an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, you know, what was interesting is I did some EMDR um, mm. therapy, mm-hmm. and she um, had my 40-year-old woman self 
talk to the 14-year-old. And there was so much compassion and so much grace and so much kindness from that 40-year-old woman that it just brought this incredible um, feeling of peace Mm. and wholeness. Mm. Because that's the other thing with infertility. You feel almost defined by it. Mm. Like the words like barren and sterile. I mean, they're such ugly words, you know? And so trying not to let that define me. I remember going to the doctor once, um, and she, she mentioned, oh, you know, you're here for sterility or something like that. And I was just like, it just made me cringe because I thought, oh my gosh, is that who I am? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there was, uh, I think a battle, um, going on inside of me, not to allow that to define who who I was or who I am. Well, I think that's an important principle as well with whatever anyone might be going through. If you think about yourself in whatever it might be, 20, 30 years, and you look back on whatever situation you had found yourself in previously when you were younger and going through something hard, you're going to mm-hmm. obviously look back on yourself with compassion. Yeah. If, Like if Bonnie, if you were to see... Uh, a young girl right now that's struggling with being diagnosed with infertility, you're obviously going to have compassion on her. And I think that's just an important principle to have is when you're going through a trial or something hard and you're doing your best, you got to have a little bit more compassion on yourself because eventually when you gain the maturity to look back in that perspective, you're going to have plenty of compassion. So might as well have it now. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of helps me understand identity a little bit and the fact of, you're like how you saw yourself at that moment was like I'm never going to be a mother but it was never this like I'm 14 I have a whole life to live you know like I I need to kind of live in the moment in 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 a, in a way but I don't know it just it just kind of is like a symbolism that that your identity really doesn't lie in what your body is or who you are as a person or or what other people say but kind of like what Aaron said it's Yes. It's having compassion for yourself and for others and I don't know. Oh, for sure. That, was not that would have been connected. S- but yes. <laughs> well, that it. would have been such a a strength for me at that time and you know what's interesting is I felt it from other women and I mentioned this in the book, but I talk about two women that really impacted me during those years. One was um sister Pat- Patricia Holland. Um she's of course married to Love Elder her. Holland and Sister Ardeth Cap, who was the general young women's president at the time. Sister Cap um, primary songs, right? Yeah, well, that's, I think, I don't know, that may be a relative of hers. Her, that is Janice Cap okay, Perry. Okay, kidding. <laughs> but, yeah, but Ardeth Cap, um, she was unable to bear children, mm-hmm. and she wrote about her infertility in a couple of, one is, was an article, another was a book that she wrote. And I read that, and I remember reading it before Young Women's Camp once, and I just felt like taking that book with me to camp because it was a comfort to me to know that here she was, she was this amazing woman, but she didn't have any children. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me hope. Okay, yeah. I can be okay. It's going to be all right. And then Sister Holland, she has a quote where she talks about the Eve was the mother of all living. That was her title, right? Mm-hmm. Before she ever had any children. Yeah. So it said more about her nature than about the head count of That's the beautiful. number of children. Yeah. That's incredible. So those things really helped me too during that time. Yeah, I have that Patricia Holland quote up here right now. I just like this line right here that says, it would appear that her motherhood preceded her maternity just as surely as the perfection of the garden preceded the struggles of mortality. Mm-hmm. That's that's a beautiful thought. Yes, right yeah, love her. So I think <laughs> we want to go, I'd love to talk just a little bit about your mission briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, was that a plan that you had growing up or was that something that came up later in your high school years or even in college that you wanted to go on a mission? Yeah, I always kind of thought I wanted to go. And then when I got to college, I actually was engaged at one point. And, and the thought kept coming, aren't you going to go on a mission? In fact, when I told my parents, that's what my dad said. I thought you were going to go on a mission. <laughs> so I don't think that made my um, fiancé feel super confident, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I did decide to not get married, but I did end up choosing to serve a mission. And... Um, 
and it was a very hard experience. People say that their mission, you know, was the most wonderful two years. Well, it was the most wonderfully hard <laughs> two years <laughs> of my life. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, but it was highly influential in, um, you know, what I decided to do mm-hmm. because um, we worked with a lot of families um, during my mission. And I was called as a welfare sister missionary oh, as well. Yeah, as well as a proselyting. So we got the best of, of both worlds. So we worked with um, families um, that, you know, were um, trying to determine, you know, how to succeed as a family. And, um, and so at that point in time, I thought, yeah, I think I want to, I want to work with families. Mm. And, um, and so that's why I decided to uh, get an undergraduate degree in um, family science is because of my mission experience. So it's kind of a catalyst for For sure your passion of families and keeping them together. Right, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's so cool. Um, I'd love to just talk a little bit about your dating experience because you mentioned Mm -hmm. that in your in the book about how how difficult this conversation was to have, right, with a potential partner that you wanted to marry. Right. That you weren't able to to bear children. If you just want to speak on that for Yeah, that was it was challenging because I felt like I needed to tell them up front yeah. so that we didn't get serious. And then I, you know, throw you it at them. Exactly. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you haven't been honest with me. You should have told me that a long time ago. And so, but the, the other side of that is if you share something like that at the beginning. Too early. You're yes. Like, Whoa, calm down. <laughs> exactly. It's like. <laughs> all new. Exactly. <laughs> all of a sudden, it's like we're talking serious and we weren't even that yeah. serious right so it was always challenging to know when to spring it right when to when to bring it up did it shoo off some guys yeah really yeah goodness gracious yeah i think crazy. that well and i think sometimes um that maybe it there was something in their patriarchal blessing that said they would have children and so i think that maybe that influenced some to say no you know this probably isn't the right match you know um but there were others who were it didn't bother them one bit Mm -hmm. and you know um and the the man that i married to now he was amazing i mean he to this day he has never felt made me feel um, less than a woman because I couldn't bear a child, yeah. you know, and I think what prepared him is his mother had some infertility issues before mm. she, um, before she became pregnant with him. Got it. And so he had heard those stories. And so I think that really was a blessing for us. Um, that's a little nugget of gold God put in your life. <laughs> yes, for sure. That's amazing. Yes, for sure. And, um, so yeah, it was awkward. Um, sometimes I never brought it up because I'm, I thought this isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> other times I did, and then I felt like it did um, cause it to end. And that was kind of um, painful, um, especially if I um, felt like, yeah, this is good, you know? Because it's something you literally can't control. Exactly. That's crazy. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, so, yeah. So what, what, kind of, what kind of advice would you give to anybody that's dating currently because everyone has you know different kinds of baggage that they bring into a relationship as it comes to telling uh, a significant other about those kind of things what kind of advice would you give to someone that is dating someone? that's a good question that's a great question because i think and going off of that i think sometimes because me and aaron we're in the dating scene right now <laughs> and you you're too premature with your deep conversations like at least for me some boys are really immature and they're like no i'm i don't like this you know but then other guys are like wow that's so attractive that you like to talk about things i'm like i can't win i can't win (laughs) right no matter what i try well when you do that's it (laughs) (laughs) um that probably is true, though, is that when you're talking with someone and there's that connection and that you resonate, yeah. then um, that's probably a, a good thing to, to pursue, I would say. Um, how to know, uh, I would just have to say, I don't know if this is, you know, the Sunday school answer, but I would say follow the Spirit um, because... Keep the Lord close. Yes, yep. 
and that will help you in those conversations. I don't know if I did that when I was your age, but um, if I if I would have, I think it would have would have mm. helped me. I love that. That's a great, great answer, advice. Bonnie. Great advice. <laughs> so let's let's jump a little bit into your your schooling. So you decided you wanted to study family science as mm-hmm. your as your bachelor's as your undergrad, and then you jumped to I think it was social social work, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. for your for your master's degree. Um, did you always have that? in mind or was it just from your mission and was that going to be based toward helping kids be adopted the whole time or did you just want to help people in general? Yeah, I think I wanted to help people in general. I noticed on my mission that um, I had some very interesting experiences where as a young missionary, we were asked to counsel married people, (laughs) right? Uh, Yeah. And, um, Yeah. And feeling, you know, incapable or not qualified um, to do that, but um, wanting to be able to help. Um, and so I was hoping that, you know, my education would would give me the skills yeah. to be able to intervene um, in ways that would promote healing and would promote um, good, you know, relationships mm. within I families. I can, I can definitely relate to that. I feel like I'm very similar that way when it comes to what I've chosen to study. Passion of fa- about families. And, and kind of going off of that, because of your passion with families, secularly and spiritually, do you think those two t- combined coincided very well? I mean, you did study at BYU, but I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I feel like now teachings of the family and teachings of how a family should look mm-hmm. secularly is very different spiritually. Right, yeah. I don't know if that question Yeah, that's sense, a great uh, a great point. It was interesting because, you know, I did my undergraduate at BYU, and then I they, I was told that in the kind of degree I was in, that it, it's better to be diverse. So I didn't even apply for BYU to get a, a master's degree. I just started. Got it. Yeah, went to University of Utah because I thought I'm in this area. This is a diverse um, school compared to BYU, mm-hmm. and so that's what I did. But what I found at um, the University of Utah, which was very intriguing to me, and that was that um, the spiritual side of things. Um, was not really respected as far as my education went. Yeah. I mean, I, I know there's people that there at the university that certainly respect edu- uh, spirituality, but it, it wasn't accepted as um, a treatment modality, um, you know, to address someone's spiritual needs. Mm. And I'm like, how can you address a person without mm. addressing their spiritual needs? Because that's a huge part, right? Their spirit, yeah. Exactly. And so um, what I did is I took what uh, made sense to me in my education, in my master's program, and incorporated it you know, into what I learned um, from BYU. But I have to tell you that probably my best education came in the 12-step programs because I worked in chemical dependency. Love that. <laughs> and um, what I love about the 12 steps is they incorporate a higher power, which incorporates yeah. for us that believe in God, um, it, it incorporates God the Father and also His Son and the great um, healing that comes through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so I, I found myself utilizing that because I could use the 12 steps. Yeah, I can't impose my values on someone else, but I can use the 12 steps because they're a respected yeah. way mm-hmm. to help, especially people that are suffering with addictions. Yeah, that's beautiful because... So at least for us with our beliefs mm-hmm. it's like you can't you can't separate spirituality in the real world right those have to go hand in hand right but for someone who like doesn't have that deep experiences with god they're not going to believe that right so it's like let's try and relate it to something and someone they do understand so they can get better for sure because then it comes becomes much bigger than you yes and when you're addicted it's hard to be outside of yourself exactly and i see yeah and i see um that uh, the role of a therapist as not a healer um but as a coach and that we can help people and lead people to find healing um 
through, if they're Christian, we can help them find it through the Savior. If they're not, then we have to find other ways to help them. But the 12 steps is a nice place to find common ground. Even with people who aren't Christian, mm -hmm. I've met with people who don't you know, believe in God, but they found a higher power, yeah. <laughs> and that's where they started. It's just like, you know, when Aaron, when he was teaching uh, King Lamoni's father, he mm. said, you know, is is that is God the great spirit? The great spirit and, yeah. and Lamoni's like, or was it Aaron? Yeah, he said, yeah, um, that's, that is God, spirit, yeah. yes. That's so that's awesome. That's so cool. I, I, I cannot endorse the 12-step program enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's, it's so intriguing, just like you said, it, it's... Not necessarily. I mean, there haven't been that many scientifically backed studies are like, why does the 12-step program work the way it does? But it's, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I'm, I'm assuming it's the most successful addiction recovery program ever built. And most addiction recovery programs are built around 12 steps nowadays. Yep, for sure. I mean, there's sexual, sexaholics anonymous, mm -hmm. there's um, cocaine anonymous, narcotics. I mean, yeah. And they're all based on those 12, those step 12 steps. Yeah. yeah. When you were at the University of Utah studying families, and it was more of a secular view mm -hmm. of studying them, did you see anything that was kind of outside of not outside of the gospel how they taught it but something more secularly based that worked but it was very much the gospel was behind it does that make sense right I don't know that right question. yeah that that is that is hard um what could i say like, there the thing that comes to my mind i just learned this in school sorry this could probably get us to the point that i was thinking um somebody when i was in school we were teaching or someone was teaching us about when you are with your family around the table three times a week or four times a week, you create a better family bond or something like that. Or it's more successful kids not on the street or parents are stronger in their marriage or something like yes, that. Yes, yeah, it's definitely. It's very secular, mm -hmm. sit down at the table and have dinner three to four times a week and you'll be successful. Yes, in fact, that is one of them. They found there's, I think his name is Paul Pearsall and he wrote The Power of the Family. He is not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mm -hmm. but he wrote about some powerful ideas. And one of them was that as you sit down together as a family and eat together, that children from those families tend to do better academically they mm. tend not to get involved with drugs and alcohol. So yes, yeah, okay. and he has the, one of the coolest quotes in his book that talks about how um, how volcanoes in the Hawaiian Islands is really what brought about the beauty of the islands. And, awesome. and he relates that to you know sometimes the volatile um, emotions that erupt in relationships in families and how sometimes when those happen we feel hopeless like oh my gosh we can't heal from this but that is not the case that just like the hawaiian islands there can be you know some very beautiful um things that come from those very challenging times that's inspiring yeah that really is that's so awesome. yeah, there are, and I found that um, from a book that I found in my um, master's program was probably um, uh, probably referenced by one of my professors, mm -hmm. and that's how I found it. So yes, okay, okay, that's awesome. Yes. I love, that's I love awesome. it. That reminds me of. There's I'm glad a, you got my question, even though I was <laughs> not giving you good things. <laughs> that reminds me of a, a book I've been recently reading. There's a philosopher that's super popular nowadays. His name is Jordan B. Peterson but who's not, doesn't profess to be religious in any ways. I think he's agnostic, but is one of the strongest upholders of the family unit just for the health of society yeah. yes. of almost anyone. So I think that's a super interesting point. I agree. I think I've always preached that. I think if more families are closer and, and more united, less crime will happen more successful people more businesses will be successful like i just think the family unit will just incorporate a bunch of things with gospel or without gospel yes if you're close as a family unit then you're unstoppable yep for sure <laughs> i agree with you 100 percent. okay love it well let's let's jump into your current family yes. right now bonnie because yeah. i'd love to talk a little bit more about the mission that you and your husband are on with this organization that you run and with your work currently in the in the book, you start out with a story about this little boy named Andre. Yes. Um, 
I don't know if you want to start there, if you want to start before that. When when did your husband first decide to start talking about adopting and, and going through that process? Yeah, that's a, a great question because we had been married just a short time, and I write down um, all of my questions before General Conference. So we're a week before General Conference, so I'll be writing my questions this week. <laughs> yes. um, I but I, I learned in the MTC that that is a great place to get answers. Even if the talk's not about the specific question, the inspiration is still there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, just shortly after we were married, um, conference came, um, and I had written down, how are we going to grow our family? And um, so I went to conference, I listened, and nothing um, stood out really with that question until after um, that session we were walking out because we were in Tennessee at the time, and um, that's when you had to go to a a church building, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have phones back then to just (laughs) pull out wherever we were, right? So we were at the church, we were walking out, and that's when a woman came and approached us. And she said, can I talk to you for a minute? And this story is in the book. And we said, yeah. And she seemed a little disturbed. And I was kind of like, hmm, I wonder what she wants to talk to us about. And she ushered us into the mother's lounge of all places. You know how they always have the mother's lounge in in church? And so that's where we were. Yeah. And she said to us, during Elder Ballard's talk on sacrifice, I felt compelled to carry a child for you. I don't know why you can't have children, but wow. um, I feel like this is something I need to do. And my husband and I had never considered surrogacy. You know, we we were talking about adoption. We had never considered surrogacy. And I don't think I ever would have. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could have asked someone to do that for me. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, you know, we went through a whole lot of things. Um, but we did uh, end up... Um, doing a surrogacy with this amazing woman. And um, and we that's where we had quadruplets. What? And yes, it's an amazing story. You'll have to get the details because it's too yeah. much for me to go into it's, right it now. It is an incredible we'll story. <laughs> um, but, um, but they were born prematurely. And so one by one, they, they died. Oh, my um, goodness. The, the, the one who lived the longest, his name was Adam, and he lived for 10 and a half months. And then oh. he passed away. And he, we just couldn't get him off the ventilator. Yeah. Um, but so there we were, and we were just like, oh, my gosh, now what? Oh. <laughs> and so parenthood, at that point in time, we're like, wow, do we really want to pursue this? And um, it took us a minute um, to to heal from that, and um, and it was about that time that we started talking adoption again. And LDS Family Services was still um, working at that point in time, and so we we reached out to them and and started working on our home study and doing the things you need to do to get ready. That's so, incredible. Yeah. And so from that point, is that where Andre comes into the story? Yes, because so we adopted domestically first, and um, and they were amazing experiences, especially with our birth families. Um, they're powerful women. Um, sometimes I feel like birth mothers get a bad rap. Yeah. Um, but they are amazing women. They are doing the best that they can for the children. Um, that they that they have and I mean, talk and about sacrifice. I feel like that's an ultimate sacrifice. Exactly, right? it's it's similar to what the Savior does because he they do for that. My birth mothers had done for me what I couldn't do for myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what the Savior does. That's and perfect. so um, we had sweet experiences with our with our birth families, and then we decided to go international. And, um, and that's when we ended up in an orphanage in Zaporozhye, Ukraine. And that's where we met Andre. Got it. Um, he was three, so he was between Esther, who was two, and Anna, who was four. And those were the two little girls that we were going to adopt. But they would send Andre into this little locker room area where we would get to visit with them each day that we went to the orphanage. And I don't know why they sent him in. But he was drawn to us, we were drawn to him, and we were like, man, 
I wonder if we can adopt him too. Wow. And so we asked about him, and we learned that he wasn't eligible because he hadn't been in the orphanage long enough. There's all kind of um, standards that must be met before a child can be adopted internationally because they first try to place him with a family member, mm-hmm. just like we do here. If they can't find a family member, then they look for a relative. If they can't find a relative, then they will try to place the children domestically. Mm. If that doesn't work, then they're available, or eligible is a better word, um, for international adoption. Wow. And so he was just not eligible um, at that point in time. And so um, after we adopted the girls, he was still always on my mind. Mm-hmm. And I wrote letters, I sent pictures to the orphanages, um, hoping that maybe... Um, we could connect with him somehow. I still look for him to this day. I've looked on social media, trying because I know his name, and I put a picture of him in the book, actually. And I'm hoping maybe someone will see it and will go, oh, I know Andre. Mm. And if he's doing well, I'll be so pleased and so happy. But if he's in need, we'll figure it out and do what we need to do. That's incredible. That's awesome. That is insane. I'd love to to get your thoughts on... The, the spiritual and the relevatory aspect of adopting a child, because as I was reading, that was one of the themes that I came across is whatever birth mother was, or whatever mother was looking to adopt, or whatever birth mother was asking themselves whether they should give up their child for adoption, God and revelation was a huge part of it. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts, and you can speak on your own experiences with this. How do you know when it's the right fit with a certain child? Um, Right. That's such a great question. Sometimes it's as clear as day, and you know it, and it seems to come with the energy to move, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Other times it feels like you're just battling, like there's one closed door after another. Mm. And in those those times, um, I've learned to, to keep moving until I get a stop sign. Um, Because... It's so hard to understand what is the adversary, what are my own fears, and what is the spirit. Sometimes it's hard to separate all of that out, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I find myself, I'm just going to keep moving until it's like, don't do it, stop, (laughs) you know, and... um, And is that usually a common stop sign among, or is it very, like, differential? I think it differs with every couple. In fact, people will ask me, especially members of the church, will say, um, yeah, we feel to move forward with this, but, but it's, it's so hard. It seems Scary. like... Scary. Yes. And um, so how do I know? And, and that's the answer I will usually give. Sometimes you will know for sure. Mm. And I think we always love that, right? <laughs> but sometimes I think the Lord wants us to be accountable. Yeah. Like when we were in Ukraine adopting Anna and Esther, um, it wasn't clear because we had started off thinking we were getting a little boy and whoever went with him. So when it was two girls, we were like, oh, is this right? And then we're like, should we be that um, finicky. I mean, all of these children need a family. So why should we be so picky exactly. about it? Yeah. Right. There's a question. A need. And exactly. it was a question about connection as well. Right. Cause if I remember right, the younger of the two girls didn't seem to connect well with your husband. Right. And part of that was because, um, he was male mm-hmm. and there was hardly any males in the orphanage. And the only male they saw was a doctor who gave them vaccinations. Mm-hmm. So that's what they thought. Maybe it was because of that, but you worry about bonding. You want to feel this natural bond, but even biological mothers don't always feel that natural bond. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them probably do, but some of them have told me that, no, I didn't feel that when they laid the baby on my chest. I didn't necessarily feel that natural bond. Or they have to fight for the bond. Yeah. Yeah. And so you worry about that as an adoptive parent because you want to be able to feel that that bond but what I've learned with that is that it takes time and don't you know get all upset if you don't feel that immediately mm-hmm. it'll come it'll come but it'll come differently because when you adopt older children you're not attending to their every need mm. right and so um, you're not doing for them and so some of that bonding that would happen in that process isn't there because you're, they're more independent, so you're not doing as much for them. Um, but when we could see that, that they weren't going to show us um, 
as a little boy and whoever went with him, we started wondering, okay, well, um, we, we fasted, we prayed. We wanted the home run feeling, right? <laughs> we wanted the it. for sure, go this way Yes, feeling, yeah. but it didn't come. It really didn't come. Why do you think the Lord does that? Because he wanted, he knew this was going to be challenging to parent, mm. and he didn't want me to, to come back and say, why did you tell us to do that? Oh. <laughs> he okay. wanted me to own it, Got it and to just embrace it. I think that's what he wanted from me. And... Um, but I, but we did get a very sweet um, kind of confirming feeling. And while we were there, I was reading an article by Elder Neil A. Maxwell, and it was called um, "Embraced in the Arms of His Love," I think. And he said in there, um, "Recall the the star of Bethlehem. It was in its orbit long before it so shone." Likewise, we are placed in human orbits to illuminate. And I'm like, mm. I'm in the orbit of these little girls. Mm. And the cool part about that article is that opposite, there was two little girls looking up at the Christus statue. And it just showed the back of the little girls. I couldn't see their faces. Yeah. But from the back, they looked just like these two little girls that we were about to adopt. That's incredible. And I was like, okay. I got it. <laughs> I got it. And even though it was hard, we ran into all sorts of um, obstacles during that process. We're like, you know what? Just because it's hard doesn't mean it isn't right. Yeah. And so I we kept that. kept going. How long were you and your husband in Ukraine during that time? Because I remember, I don't think there was a specific time put in the book, but it sounded like it was a while. Yeah, we were there for about a month. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a long time. Trying and to it, make these yes and it was over the holiday so that complicated things because everything shut down so that made it probably a little longer than it would have been and there's a there's a sweet like confirming story that kind of finished out that Mm -hmm. on the on the plane trip home right there's would you mind speaking to that experience Right. So, oh man, we got to the airport and if it wasn't one thing, it was another. And so we were trying to get through to the gate and they wouldn't let us through. Right. And so they kept um, looking through our paperwork, like something's not right. And we were like, oh my gosh, do they want some grease money? Because we had experienced that. Right. Um, And so I just was exhausted. I, I remember just slumping on the floor with my luggage and my two little girls with me. And my husband was up there trying to figure things out. And, um, and then um, it was amazing because this flight attendant, she just walked up. She talked with the man who was going through our papers and said, I don't know what she said because it was in Russian, but it must have been something like, they need to go. They're going to miss their plane. And so she just gathered us up, and she just walked us right past him, took us to the plane. The plane was on the tarmac. We had to walk out to the tarmac up up the stairs, and we got on the plane, and we were settled, settling in, and... I thought that that flight attendant must have been an angel for sure Mm. (laughs) because she came out of nowhere, you know. Um, But we got on the plane. I was like, I just could breathe. And then I sensed from my littlest, her name is Esther, and I sensed from her she was like, um, I can't really say what I thought because there was a swear word in it, but... (laughs) Can I say that? Go for she it. She was like, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and that's her personality, if you yeah. want to know her today. <laughs> and she wanted to be free to Aww. feel the measure yeah. of her creation, to reach for her potential. Mm. And she knew, her spirit knew that she couldn't do it there. Oh. That's and powerful. so that's and I, and that was such a sweet communication to me at that time. It was it was a confirmation. Okay, it's all good. We're we're doing okay, even though on the way, you know, um, once we got on the plane, both of my girls wanted me to take them to the restroom together, and of course you can't fit in an airplane restroom together, and so I, we had their little. You you can edit this out. <laughs> no. I don't want to tell the rest of the story. It's probably not good. Anyway. No, please. Okay. Well, so <laughs> anyway, in, in the orphanage, um, they they would all use the restroom together yeah, yeah. in a circle. And they had these pots. And after they would eat, they would all sit around in a little circle. And they would have to sit on those pots until they went to the bathroom. 
Oh, and gosh. what was so funny is that they wanted to talk to each other, so they would scoot across the floor <laughs> in their, with their little pots, you know, so they could still communicate with one another. But they gave us their pots. And so they, they had trouble using a toilet because they had never really used one. Wow. And so when we were in the airplane, we kind of figured out, oh, my gosh, this isn't working. And so we were fortunately in the bulkhead. And so we had their little pots, and we just covered them with a blanket. And they would just use their little pots, and I would take their pots and go to the restroom and empty them. But we had little, you know, um, challenges like that all the way home. But um, anyway, it was... It was it's still a tender mercy, right? To oh, have for those. sure, yeah. to have those pots. Yeah. And we kept them forever. We used them as <laughs> cleaning pots. <laughs> but, oh, but I think we goodness. finally gave them away. Yeah. Anyway. That's crazy. I, I kind of want to go continuing on this idea of gathering Israel's children because I, I, it's an idea I've never understand this, this saying with this. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm very within the adoption world, but gathering Israel's children and on her book it says how the Lord is gathering his family by inspiring forever families to adopt mentor and love his children in need and and how do you approach I mean you approach that with adoption and with raising children um how do you go with the whole love his children in need? How how would you advise our listeners on that? Yes, for sure. Um, this book is essentially about the gathering process, but the next book will be about the nurturing process because that is key. Uh, many of these children have come from hard places. Um, they have experienced trauma, and so they definitely need healing. And the best place to get healing is in a family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that the Lord, um, he is so pleased when these children get into a family and they're not, no longer in an institution. The impact of institutions on children huge. is negative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not good. And so, and I know sometimes um, thinking of the millions of children that are in awful situations can be just overwhelming. Yeah. And we can think, um, the Lord is going to watch over them. They will be saved eventually. And so we kind of back passive. off. Passive, yeah. yeah, little passive commandment. Exactly. And, um, but when I think of that story or that um, way of looking at things, I think of the sons of Messiah because they could have thought that about the Lamanites. They could have thought, you know what? The sins will be on the heads of their wicked Not parents. Not our job, yeah. And we don't need to go there. It's dangerous. It's hard, you know. But they didn't. They went and they blessed so many lives with truth and light. That's incredible. And so that's kind of how I think about these kids is, yeah, the Lord will definitely um, compensate these children, um, but he, he also wants us to do all we can to bless them. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I do. I think that um, the Lord sees helping these children as gathering his family. Hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a, at the very end of, of Bonnie's book, there's this quote, Um, from President Nelson that we've all heard over the last few years, but he just says, gathering Israel is the greatest challenge, the greatest cause, and the greatest work on earth, and that nothing else compares in magnitude, nothing else compares in importance, nothing else compares in majesty. So in whatever way that is, Bonnie's, that's, I mean, it's, President Nelson said, it's the most important work. On the earth today. It is. And he also says that whenever we're helping anybody to make and keep sac- sacred covenants, that we're gathering Israel. Yeah. And when these children come into our homes, we teach them who they are. We teach mm-hmm. them who Jesus is. We teach them to pray. We teach them to make and keep covenants. And we teach them to get healing through the Savior's atonement. And that is, that is gathering Israel. Um, I also think of the allegory of the olive tree. Mm. You know, how the branches were scattered, mm. and then they gathered them, and they grafted them into the tree. Mm. And I love that because it says in one part of um, Jacob 5 that those grafted branches gathered much strength from the root. And it caused the whole tree to flourish. And that's what I think these kids do for us. Yes. I mean, we're helping them, but they're helping us. There's this reciprocal, you know, effect going on. And mm-hmm. I love that. I really, 
I really love that. That's so cool. I'd love to, I want to ask you this too, because there's this sentence um, in the, I think it's, I think this is in the afterword of your book, but we always have, and we don't, we don't remember what the pre-mortal world was like. We don't remember what it was like to live with our heavenly father. We don't re- we don't know how much we planned or expected to go through before we came here. But you have this, this line at the end of your book where you say, these children may have sacrificed coming to the earth in better circumstances. Mm so as to be in the best position to bless their lineage through adoption. I'd love to just, because I know there's probably more thoughts that came as a result of... Yeah, we can break that down yeah. for an hour. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I've often wondered, is adoption just random? Do these kids just end up wherever, and then we got to go find them? And for some reason, I don't think it's so random. Mm-hmm. I, don't um, I think these kids said, you know what? i got to bless my lineage. And how do I do that? And I don't know all the ins and outs of how we discussed things before we came, but I can imagine that. Mm-hmm. that I can imagine me with my kids, and we're like, okay, you're going to go here, I'm going to go there, and we will find you, we'll work this out. I know you're trying to bless these people that you've met here in the pre-mortal life, and you want to bless them. They haven't chosen Jesus yet, but you want to bless them with that, and we do too. And I mean, I again, I don't know how that works. Yeah. I'm just making it up. But um, but I, I don't think it's as random as it seems. Mm-hmm. I think that there's more purpose and there was more planning um, before we came. And when I work with families who are adopting currently, it's amazing to hear their stories because they feel the spirit and then they start the process and then they they find these kids and they're like, I saw those kids in a dream. I know that's who they are. I mean, yeah. it's it doesn't seem random. Yeah. I, I know my mom has had several experience occasions with that, and they were my cousins that we adopted. And I just, I know that the Lord has way better plans than we do, and these children have have lives that they've chosen to follow Jesus as well. And sometimes their situations don't put them in that arena that they can do that. Exactly right. That's insane. Yeah, exactly right. And I think there's, we're going to be reading this in a couple of weeks in Isaiah for Come Follow Me, but there's that, I think it's in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, where he says the Lord's ways are higher than, than our ways. Mm-hmm. So our, our perspective is so limited while we're here on earth, whether that be intentionally or not, but there's always a higher plan. Yeah. Um, kind of going back to that President Nelson quote, mm-hmm. The gathering of Israel is the most important work. And in your your perspective is children and helping children come into these homes. What do you give advice to or I guess suggestions to how to apply that? Because not every one of us are in situations where we can adopt kids or that we're able to. Um, but like the things that were coming to my head was like humanitarian work with children, mm-hmm. um, volunteering yes. with social or um, foster homes or foster parents or I I just know that there's a lot more that we can all constantly be doing to try and help these family situations be better even though you personally couldn't do that but you could eventually right but in this moment at time you want to kind of help the cause but don't know how exactly well you just listed several really good ones (laughs) and one of them that I that um, I would love to to talk about in the next book is um, is how we can help families who have adopted children who have come from hard places. Sometimes when parents are struggling with these kids, they're like, well, they chose to do it, so they're in it, right? <laughs> but I would love to see um, people jumping in to help them, mm-hmm. to support them, and to understand, wow, yeah, this is hard. But they're, they're doing what's right, and we're going to help them. And, um, and it's even um, extended family members, that they can really uh, make a difference in helping these parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. So that would be probably one of my, my main things. But also refugee, um, helping some of these families that are coming you know, from Ukraine right now, but also that are coming across the border. Um, some of these unaccompanied minors. Yeah. And you're giving me the opportunity to talk about some of these kids that are aging out of the system. Mm. 
and they, they are usually 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, somewhere in there, and they often don't have support. And so finding ways to support those kids would be yeah. a huge mm. project, but it would be so valuable and so meaningful to these kids um, because who do they celebrate their birthday with? Who do they celebrate Christmas with? They're in a season where they're making these gigantic decisions about where they're heading next. And they don't have support. Support. Yeah. Yeah. Or an adult figure to go to. Exactly. What goes to my mind, and super quick, Erin, I know you're like, get with this mic away. My, like I said, my family, um, the biggest supporters that has has been ever in this entire adoption process with my six siblings has been our ward family mm-hmm. and and to this day they call them their grandmas and wow. their aunts and they're just people that we grew up with right we know very well but they decided to help us with this task of raising these children because patience is a virtue that I don't have <laughs> or my mother <laughs> and there's these incredible people within our ward who have these talents that they just give to us and give to us and, and allow, resources yeah resources for these kids to have that's a family-like unit yes that is even beyond their adopted family. yes that is so key i mean that is zion yeah exactly. to me when a, a ward family does exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about that is that is Zion that's beautiful where you know it, there are no poor among them mm-hmm. you know and a poor is having any unmet need whatever it is and so for families to come in and and meet needs um that's amazing yeah yeah there's a really tender story just going along with this in the book about this I think it was a 14 year old boy who was kicked out of his home and he ended up sleeping on the stairs of the seminary building or something like that and one of the board members from the ward um, brought brought him into their home and then he ended up developing a bond with their church ball coach and eventually it turned into him being adopted by wow. the, the coach's family and it's a really really beautiful story y'all have to get the book for real um, I have a question this is kind of a logistical question more than anything but something that came up in the book repeatedly is it's kind of financially taxing yes yeah. the adoption process what yeah. what kind of advice would you give to people that do want to adopt but don't have either the financial means or they don't even know where to start. Right. That is um, a huge issue in adoption is how much it costs. And I think it should cost nothing. Um, but there are expenses, and there's and it's become a more regulated process, which has increased the amount that it costs. It's a lot of attorney fees, right? Right. Well, there's... Which so is many. for safety of the children? Is that my it is? It's okay. in the best interest, and I always try to remind myself that the reason these regulations are in place mm-hmm. are for the best interest of the children, for the safety, the protection mm-hmm. of the children. Um, but to adopt domestically is probably about forty-six thousand dollars right now, and to adopt internationally is probably about twenty-five. But then you have to take into account your travel and your lodging, and mm-hmm. so it's close to about the same amount. And so it's like, how can we afford this? I can tell you one thing that for us paying our tithing was always a blessing somehow the doors opened and my husband would get an account something would happen where we would we were blessed with the money um, right now um, there are grants that people can get and sometimes their their um, workplace will actually um, provide some money and they don't even know about it because they don't advertise it so you always want to check with your work mm. to see if there's any benefits for adoptive parents Wow. Um, but yeah and crowdfunding is works um, you can use social media to to get monies um, if I have anything to do with it I will try to uh, come up with the perpetual adoption Option fund. <laughs> so yeah. that would be where families who can afford it can pay for their adoption, but then they can, you know, add to a fund so that families who can't afford that much, there's monies available for them. Mm-hmm. I would love to provide something like that. But um, you can also take out a loan, which, you know, it's like, why, you know, take out a loan and go into debt? But um, you, you can do that too. Um, I guess that's what I would say. Yeah. The Lord so, has means. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie. Yeah. We're super, I mean, for real, so appreciative of you coming on and, and sharing your insights and your thoughts and your journey with us.
Yeah, well, really our per- first professional on the podcast. <laughs> well, really I, feel honored. <laughs> I feel honored and, and I'm so appreciative of the work that you two are doing to bring into the light um, some of these issues that don't get a lot of light. And so way to go. Wow. So impressed. Couldn't do it without people like you. So, um, Bonnie, let's just end with our favorite question. Um, if there was one thing that you could choose, I think we kind of already talked about it, but let's just highlight it a little bit. Um, if there's one thing that you could choose for our listeners to kind of take away what they could, what you could bring into the light on this topic, um, what would it be specifically? It would be that children need forever families. They need to grow in a family where they can learn and they can develop and they can reach their potential and they can feel the measure of their creation. It's very hard for children to do that without a family. Beautiful. Beautiful. Bonnie, we know that you're making so much impact on these beautiful kids. Um, We just want to make a shout out and we'll put it in the show notes Mm -hmm. um, of Bonnie's book, Gathering Israel's Children, um, Bonnie B. Hilton. Um, Find it on Amazon. Is there anywhere else you can find it, Bonnie? um, You can go to our our website, deliverprojects.org. But it just takes you to Amazon, actually. Um, well, Amazon where everyone gets their But you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can also shoot me an, an email if you want a signed copy. And, um, and my email is on the website. And I will send you a signed copy. Sounds good. That's Sounds awesome. Good, thank you. I Bonnie. cannot, I cannot endorse this book enough. I just, I bought the ebook earlier this week, and if it wasn't for homework, I think I would have read it in a day. I had to like be responsible and put the book down because it's just these super tender and heartwarming stories. Of, it's not all Bonnie stories. Bonnie has has gotten people to write in first person mm-hmm. their perspective and stories about the process of adoption and different experiences. And it's, it's mm-hmm. an incredible book. One of my favorite I've read this year so far. Yeah. And we also want to, I don't think we said this to you before Bonnie, but I'm saying to you now, um, a resource episode. We always do a resource episode after. And so, um, any more resources, et cetera, that Bonnie has, we're going to get and, and film that. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Also, before we close, just a quick shout out to my friend Mallory Day. Yes. Formerly Sister Hopkins. I knew we were on the mission. Um, but Mallory Day is the one that connected us with, with Bonnie. I think yes. you were here. Love young Mallory. Woman's, young woman's leader back yes. in the day. Yes, yes, back in the day. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So thank you, Mallory. Again, if any of you have any anybody you'd want to have on the podcast or any stories that you want to share with us, we're always open and available to those. You can message us on Instagram or shoot us an email at into the light. 5024 at gmail.com We love you all so much. Thank Thank you you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week.